0: I wanna get locked up tonight Listen to Rob Rossi and roll. rock On the only podcast that I'll hear That won't make me wanna rip off my ears to another exciting episode of The Rock Show, and we are talking about a legendary band. This is episode 155, and we're talking about the Allman Brothers Band, and Mike, I've seen these guys live a few times at the Beacon. I've been to some of those March Madness shows where they do that whole thing for the whole month.
1: That's like that's great. Song. Yeah, they would. They, they had that residency at the Beacon Theater for years, um, the Allman Brothers. Now, I have to say, I never saw them. Oh, man. And I kind of regret it a little bit. Uh, I, I, I've always kind of waffled back and forth with with Southern rock bands like that. Sometimes I can sit down; it's good drinking music, you know. But it, but but sometimes I just I I, I can't get into it. But I do appreciate the Allman Brothers a lot as a band. Uh, what what they went through a lot of tragedy, a lot of fighting, a lot of problems. Uh, Record label problem every, every, Anything that a band could Have faced pretty much This band faced You know And uh even just doing the research To put this show together I was like wow You know there's a few things I didn't know before And they really went through a lot
0: Yeah they also always had Really good guitarists they, they also, Oh yeah they had, some, they had a lot of band changes A lot of bands Yeah
1: they had a lot of lineup changes Because a lot of guys Couldn't deal with the bullshit In the band you know, there was always a lot of infighting and, you know, especially uh, the idea of the Allman Brothers really was almost like a, a commune. OK, like when they got together, they all lived together at first. OK, for a while uh, through the first couple albums, uh, worked together every day, practice together, live together. And then as fame kicked in, the relationship started to deteriorate. And it became kinda different factions arose. And it happens, you know, you see it in the best of bands. Uh, but with these guys, they were crazy party animals, you know, and it just it just really went off the rails several times.
0: There was nothing like going to see them live and watching uh I've heard 5 minute version of Whipping Paws.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I I I've seen clips of that and it's amazing and like I said I wish I could have seen them. Uh obviously with Greg Allman gone now that's never going to happen. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh anyway, uh let's get into it because it's a really interesting deep story.
0: Yep.
1: So, they formed in Jacksonville in 1969 uh by brothers Dwayne and Greg Almond, and also guitarist Dickie Betts.
0: Dicky Betts was uh, a great guitarist.
1: Yeah. Now keep in mind that the first this this is a little hard to understand. The first the first two records actually bombed. Okay, they well, the second one did a little bit better than the first. But it wasn't until they put the live album called At Fillmore East out in 1971, which is now fifty one years ago. Yeah. uh that they really took off so they're one of these unique bands and we've covered a couple of bands like this that actually made it because of live records you know kiss is one of them and yeah. cheap trick cheap okay was a, was another band that really broke based on their live record live at budokan in that case but with the live at fillmore east uh it just broke open and 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 they did things they did everything the old-fashioned way. They really worked hard on their live show, and had that reputation as a live show.
0: Yeah, Before, a great I, think, show great. I
1: think that's and and I think that's why the live record broke them, because I think there was a, a sound that they had live that never really could be duplicated in a studio. Okay, you could you might you couldn't get that energy that you could get by being there, but the live record must have done it. Because it really, you know, did it for him. But the history goes back a, a lot of years. Um, Dwayne Allman and his younger brother, Greg, they grew up in Daytona Beach in Florida, that area. And Greg actually, being the younger brother, he picked up the guitar first. But Dwayne, the older brother, actually surpassed him. He, he got When he picked it up, he got into it. He uh, dropped out of school. He was practicing all the time, getting lessons and you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the two guys, would, the two brothers would form the, uh, a band called The Escorts. And that evolved into a band called The Almond Joys. Instead of, <laughs> instead of Almond Joys, The Almond Joys. And that Imagine was... In the that
0: mid- here, comes, here comes The Almond joy.
1: The, 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 the Almond Joys. The Almond <laughs> Joys. But... That was in the mid-60s, you know, British Invasion, that kind of sound. And by 1967, the band had spent a little time in St. Louis where they connected with um, an L.A. record executive based with uh, Liberty Records out in California. Liberty Records. Liberty Records, we talked about them a lot. They were signing a lot of bands at that time. Uh, They actually turned down the Beatles. Remember, we were talking about that.
0: That's insane.
1: Yep. Now they ended up moving out West to record and they changed their name again, this time from, uh, from the Almond Joys to the Hourglass. Okay. And they cut two albums that didn't go anywhere. This is Dwayne and Greg and some other musicians. Uh, I think they kind of had different guys at different times. Uh, you can actually go online on YouTube and look up Hourglass and see them. There's, there's like there's, there was like some promo clips and little live things. To me, they sounded they sounded like the Guess Who. That's what they sounded like. Now, Dwayne Allman would would leave the Hourglass and go back to uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. He would relocate there and concentrate on being a a session musician. I think that's what he was thinking of at that time. The two unsuccessful albums. I guess he figured he wanted to play, but he just couldn't get it together with a band. Mm -hmm. Plus there's always easy money with that. Okay. And he was, he was a very good guitar player. Um, Now Muscle Shoals um, had the, uh, the famous fame studios there. Okay. And he was working for them. Uh, Greg stayed behind. Still under contract with Liberty Records, thinking that Liberty was going to give him a solo career. Okay, that, that he waited around. That didn't exactly happen. Mm. Uh, there was about a year that the two of them were apart, and uh, but they got reunited in Miami when uh, it was on a band called the, the 31st of February. That was That's the name of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that included drummer Butch Trucks who ended up being in the Allman Brothers. Yep. Um, they cut some demos with him at that time, Okay, when they the three met in Miami. Now, at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Dwayne Allman became the main session guitar player there. Whenever they needed a the guitar player, he was there. Um, he worked with Aretha Franklin, King Curtis, and uh, particularly worked with Wilson Pickett. Uh, Wilson Pickett was recording at the time and he, uh, Dwayne was in the studio with him and Dwayne suggested that they do a cover of the Beatles. Hey Jude. And it ended up oh, being, wow. yeah, it ended up being a top 30 hit for Wilson Pickett on the billboard charts. Wow. Uh, yeah. And it would, that, that, if you've ever listened to that, it's a very good version of the song. I actually, <laughs> actually prefer it over the Beatles yeah, yeah, and and a lot of people were paying attention to Dwayne at that point. One particular person would be Eric Clapton, who we would befriend in a short time after that. Um, like I said, the single went to number twenty three, and in the process of that, it ended up that Dwayne got a five year recording contract at Fame Studios to be the wow. primary session guitar player. Um, Dwayne recruited. For the band that he was putting together, which was unnamed at this point, he had his brother, okay, but he also recruited um, Jai Johani Johansson, who is basically known as Jmo, okay, on oh, yeah. drums, and uh, he heard of him on a demo, okay, that uh, uh, he heard, I-, I guess, in the recording studio somewhere, and didn't know him, and just looked him up, and they became fast friends. And uh, JMO actually moved in with Dwayne at his house on the Tennessee River. Wow. Which he had. Now, Allman also invited bassist Barry Oakley to the jam um, and basically jammed with these guys. They were trying to put this band together. They also became quickly very fast friends. Um, the group had immediate chemistry and Dwayne's vision. For a band was very different. He wanted to have two drummers, okay. Which nobody really did that, okay. Yeah. Uh, and it and it, you know basically two drummers and almost like two lead guitarists in a sense, okay. And uh, they they knew Phil Walden, who was trying to put together a uh, a new uh, recording, a new a new record label, I should say, okay. Phil Walden was the manager of Otis Redding. Otis Redding, unfortunately, had passed away around that time. Uh, he was also involved in other R&B acts. And uh, he wanted to put together this label that would be rock, a rock label, and they would be distributed by Atlantic Records. So that label would eventually be called Capricorn. And for the time in the 70s that the uh, Allman Brothers, through all the Successes they were on that label, uh, they were the band on that label that basically carried the whole label. I can't think of anybody else on that label that was as big as the Allman Brothers. I don't don't know, nobody, yeah,
0: there were other bands, but nobody had, yeah,
1: they had some other rock acts, but and but it really the Allman Brothers was the the bread and butter. Um, Dwayne and Jmo moved to Jacksonville in early March 1969 as Dwayne became frustrated with fame, okay? Uh, He was still doing session work, but he wasn't getting along with the management there. And uh, basically, uh, uh, Jerry Wexler, who was the leader of, uh, the executive, CEO, I should say, of of Atlantic, okay, he purchased um, Dwayne's bands, which would be the Allman Brothers. They didn't have a name yet. All the recordings and demos and stuff, he purchased them for ten thousand dollars to get was, out of the contract of uh of fame. Is
0: that a lot of money? Ten
1: thousand dollars in nineteen sixty nine, yeah. But yeah. but if you think about what he reaped, no. Okay, you know, it's ten thousand to make ten million, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, no big deal. Now um uh Dickie Betts who was the leader of Oakley's previous band uh, joined in with this group. Uh, the band was called the second coming. Um, also uh, the uh, Butch trucks who was in the second coming, I should say with, he, he hooked up with them too. So basically this is the core of the Allman brothers right here. You got Butch trucks, Dickie Betts, Dwayne, Greg, and Barry Oakley on bass. Okay. Uh, They would be cutting demos at this time, doing a lot of work, living together. Okay. And uh, they had two drummers. You had J Mo also. Okay. So it was definitely a unique band. Um, They also brought in the Second Cummings, Reese Wyman's, to play keyboards. And Dwayne, Oakley, and Betts all shared vocal duties. Okay. Now, the unnamed group began to do free shows in Willow Branch Park in Jacksonville with an ever-changing rotating lineup. Sometimes they had different members in the band uh, when guys couldn't play live for whatever reason. Uh, Dwayne felt that, you know, his brother really should be the lead singer of the band, okay? So what would happen is he would be brought in and Wyans would kind of be considered obsolete because Greg could play keyboards too. You understand? Yeah. So Greg left Los Angeles permanently. He gave up on his, his solo career, okay, and uh, came back. And they, you know, immediately started rehearsing. And on March 26, 1969, the group did a, a, a cover of uh, Muddy Water's Trouble No More. They would start working on that. Great song, and they put a nice little twist on it. Um,
0: Fantastic song.
1: Yeah, it is. Now, Greg was a little nervous with this band. Uh, he, you know, he he liked the idea, but he was nervous playing among them because they were all very accomplished musicians. Um, but Dwayne was, was persistent and said, Greg, you can do this, sing your heart out, you got this. So four days later. They made their debut at the Jacksonville Armory, where they used to have a lot of shows, and they had to come up with a name to play. Okay, so they kicked around a few names. One, one that they almost picked was called Bezelbub. <laughs> Bezelbub, imagine that. <laughs> okay, Bezelbub. But,
0: <laughs> but they settled. Name.
1: They would settle on the Allman Brothers band, which made a lot more sense. Um, the group would move to Macon, Georgia around May 1st, 1969. This would be their headquarters for a long time. Uh, and this was where Phil Walden was was establishing Capricorn Records. Now, Mike Callahan and Joseph Red Dog Campbell became the band's early crew members. Uh, Red Dog was a disabled veteran who was getting disability checks every month and giving it to the band, basically wow. to help them carry along because they didn't have anything. Um, he would be a big part of their early years. Uh, as a, he wrote a book actually, and the name of it escapes me, but if you look on the Red Dog Campbell, he has a book, a book. About that whole thing, yeah. Greg Allman has a very good book too about the band, um, in making. The band stayed at friend Twiggy London's apartment. Okay, and that was oh, at it's Le- called the,
0: leg- the legendary Red Dog: and Book of Tales.
1: Legendary about Book of Tales.
0: Year, about his early years at Rody, in the movie o- Almost Famous, Jack Will played the character
1: Red Dog. Yeah, right. There's that Red Dog character in Almost Famous, which is a great yeah. movie. Everybody should see that. Yeah, I like that movie. Twiggy's apartment was located at 309 College Street in Macon, and it quickly became known as the Hippie Crash Pad. pad. (laughs) Now, the band was basically broke, okay? And they, they, you know, were just practicing constantly, obviously not working much. And they didn't always have money to eat, but they made friends with um, the owner and cook of a soul food place in the area. Her name was Maria Louise Hudson, okay? And they would run a a tab at her restaurant when they were low on money, and uh, she would feed them, basically. Wow. So the group performed locally, and they practiced at Capricorn Studios daily. Um, They formed a strong brotherhood, just being together all the time. Uh, it It was 1969. They were consuming a lot of psychedelic drugs, together (laughs) (laughs) and they and and they actually used to rehearse uh at a a, outside sometimes in a cemetery called rose hill cemetery
0: that's amazing that was amazing when i read that i was like jesus christ you're all all hopped up on some psychedelic you're writing
1: songs in a cemetery (laughs) it's like a recipe for disaster
0: that's, a, that's like a trip That's like a yeah, freaking
1: yeah. trip If I was doing psychedelics The last place I'd want to be is a cemetery <laughs> I don't know But then again who knows? <laughs> you were thinking they're coming out Coming to get you You know, um, Their first performance outside the South Was in Boston On May 30th and 31st uh, 1969 Opening for the Velvet Underground Believe it or not Dude, uh, that that's was, such a... That, that's such a, a crazy pair-up right there. Um I remember but,
0: the Velvet Underground? That sounds like...
1: What the and they, they were opening for the Velvet Underground. That's
0: insane.
1: Yeah, I, I imagine that... Yeah, I, I could picture like the Velvet Underground crowd not liking them too much. Oh, hell was, no. no but, and they didn't really have a following at that point in Boston, so that must have been a tough show. But... Uh... In need of more material, they kind of started working on old blues songs like Trouble No More, uh, a song called One Way Out, which they would work on. Uh, And they had improvised jams, okay, Uh, such as the Mountain Jam. That was one song. I mean, they were known for their instrumentals too, the Allman Brothers. Uh, Greg, who had struggled to write songs in the past, started to write more and more, okay, And he eventually became their sole songwriter, pretty much, in those early years. Uh, You know, quickly he wrote tracks like Whipping Post, uh, Black-Hearted Woman. Okay, these would all end up on the first one and two albums. Uh, The band was originally set to record their first record in Miami with Cream and John Coltrane producer Tom Dowd. That's who they they wanted Uh to get. Wow. But he proved to be unavailable, unfortunately, so they had to go to New York City in August of 1969 to work with Atlantic Records house engineer Adrian Barber on his very first production credit. It was the first album he ever produced. Uh, the self-titled Allman Brothers Band album was recorded and mixed in two weeks and was a pretty good experience for everybody. Um New York City. I, I guess it was their first time there. I'm assuming uh, it, it would it would really be kind of a second become a second home for them. Okay, um, the debut record was released on November in November of 1969 through Atco, which was Atlantic and Capricorn Records, but it only sold a little less than 35,000 copies.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, that's pretty
1: yeah. Bad. So it, it it didn't do too well. Nationally But um, After this commercial failure uh, They Suggested that uh, s- Some record executives were getting on them Saying well you should move out of Macon and, and move up To New York City and kind of get in the mix And get acclimated to the record Business but they, did, they had An attitude well we're not going to act like rock stars Yet we're not rock stars Okay we're just starting out and we're trying to Get it together And they they liked being down in Macon. At least at that point, they liked being based out of there. So they rented a $165 a month farmhouse, and they called it Idlewild South, okay? (laughs) And Idlewild was the old name of JFK Airport, so I guess they were referring to New York with that by saying, you know, something New York South. So much of the music presented on their second album, which would be called Idle, Idle Wild South, okay, would originate from that farmhouse. Um, with all their rehearsals and everything, they would come out with a second record. By March 1970, they would move to a Tudor style home in Macon that they also nicknamed the Big House. Now, the Allman Brothers would play continuously in 1970 performing over 300 dates on the road that's traveling amazing. yeah traveling in a ford econoline van wow. and later they purchased a winnebago winnebago motorhome type thing wreck vehicle okay uh and they nicknamed it the windbag <laughs> <laughs> i love the names yeah it's <laughs> now walden was beginning to doubt their future. He was managing them, but he was like, "I don't know what's going to happen with these guys. Are they ever going to catch on?" Uh, but what was happening on that 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 second tour is that well, a big national tour? They were kind of doing three hundred dates. That's almost every night. All yeah. right, that's only sixty five nights off out of a year. Okay, yeah, that's crazy. So that's crazy. And you're in a van driving all over the place and a Winnebago. Um, But what would happen is they would start getting, especially up and down the East Coast and in the South, they would get this reputation as a a live act that you got to see. So with that, they were noticing that the crowds were getting bigger. They were starting to be able to play bigger venues. Yeah. And things were moving up, even though commercially they weren't selling a lot of records. Now, spending a lot of time in the Winnebago... Okay, it kind (laughs) of led to a lot of, you know, debauchery, okay, and and, uh, (laughs) drug use was starting to get kind of heavy, okay, and everyone except Dwayne and Greg were really struggling financially, you know, Dwayne and, and Greg had a little bit of a music career before, okay, probably had a few dollars stashed, okay, and remember Greg was the main songwriter, okay. Now, a yeah. friend, Twigs London, who was their this tour manager.
0: This is, is crazy.
1: Yeah, this is the craziness of, of the road, especially <laughs> in those days. He stabbed and killed a promoter for not paying the band. Okay. Now, he later pleaded temporary insanity. Now, I, I don't know how he got away with it. Okay. I did get no idea. But <laughs> later that year, Dwayne also accidentally overdosed. On some opium after after a show So there's starting to be some problems here Okay, a little yeah, bit of crazy. Now, Wild South, the album Would be produced by Tom Dowd They will be able to get him for that And it was recorded gradually over a five-month period While they were touring and being in various cities uh, It would be recorded in New York, Miami And also Macon, Georgia um midnight rider was recorded for this record which is one of my favorite songs by them and uh also the song in memory of elizabeth reed which is a fan favorite yeah um wild south would be released in september of 1970 and it did a little bit better than their first yeah. yeah
0: yeah
1: and based on based on the uh the reputation of them as being a great live act now after finishing the album Tom Dowd would put Dwayne Allman in contact with Eric Clapton because he had worked with him for Cream, okay? And they started to jam together. Uh, Eric was getting the Derek and the Dominoes project together, and they hit it off. Uh, Clapton turned out to be a fan of Dwayne's guitar playing because he had heard the the Hey Jude version of uh, Wilson with him on guitar and was impressed by it. So they got along very well. And Clapton actually uh, was offered. Uh, Clapton actually offered Dwayne to be in Derek and the Dominos. Wow. Okay. He, he could have played on Layla. Okay. But, you know, he thought about it, gave it some thought, but he decided he wanted to stay with the Allman brothers and do his own thing. Um, and, you know, Clapton understood and they stayed friends. Yeah. Uh, In the end, of course, like declining, he would stay with the Allman Brothers, but the recording sessions that Dwayne and Eric Clapton did were actually released later that year on uh, an album called Layla and Other Assorted Songs. So that stuff was quickly put out. Yeah. Which, to be honest with you, I don't know if I've ever heard that. I have to check that out, what that sounds like. Uh, Clapton at that time was... Was was interesting. I'm not a big Clapton fan, but what he was doing then was 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 pretty good.
0: Yeah, he was working with a lot of people, man. Also, oh now yeah, Think about
1: that. Yeah, I mean, he had just come up. had just two years earlier, he had just uh, played on the Beatles' White Album. Imagine,
0: imagine if Dwayne would have left the Allman Brothers, joined Clapton. That would have been. Well, that would have been the
1: too. end of the Allman Brothers. Yeah. there wouldn't you. have been. But Derek and the Dominoes didn't last either. No. Nah. So, you know, and they, if you remember, they came out of, they formed out of the George Harrison sessions for, uh, yeah. for, uh, uh, his solo, yeah. all things must pass. Yeah. Oh,
0: right.
1: yeah. It's funny how all these things are intertwined, you know, now through the course of 71, the Allman brothers fortunes really began to change. Uh, yeah, the live shows really were, yeah, they got hot. The live shows were taking off. Uh, So they just decided out of the blue, let's record a live record. Okay, they had two studio records under their belt. They were getting to be well-known as a live act. Why not? So the album at Fillmore East was recorded over three nights, March 11th, 12th, and 13th in 1971. Uh, In total, they were paid $1,250 per night. So they made about thirty six, thirty seven hundred dollars, something like that. Okay, over those three nights.
0: But that's and, actually pretty good, you know. For, well, they had to
1: split it. They had to split it several ways. But okay,
0: this is this is seventy one, seventy two, yeah. which and, that's a lot of money.
1: <laughs> and the, the, the film, yeah, and of course the album was huge. It was it was yeah. it went gold very quickly. Um, it, it was actually a double album okay and which which some people forget because you know when you hear it on cd today or if you hear it on download it you don't realize it but it actually was a double album and it was it was sold as a single album though it wasn't any more money which I was really? uh, yeah which was a good deal capricorn probably really and atlantic probably took a little bit of a risk doing that okay cuz double albums notoriously are expensive uh, not just not just for the consumer but for the people to make it okay because everything is you're putting out two records basically so you gotta you gotta yeah, but you think know,
0: about you you press take all that them. record you take out that record as a single well, surprise that's two album but it's a single price at a single because what, four yeah. people are gonna buy it
1: yeah you know who didn't uh, didn't prince do that? Yeah, I think Prince might have done, that. wasn't si- a- wasn't like Sign of the Times a double? Or 1999 was a double record, and they they charged as one price, something like that. But
0: they might have been the Sign of the Times. I think that it was, was Sign a- of the oh, Times. Oh, Peaches and Cream, one of those.
1: I, I I think it was Sign of the Times because I remember buying 1999. That was a double album, and I think that was more expensive. But Sign of the Times, I think he kept that down in price. Um. But anyway, uh, the double album was released in July of 71 and it took off on the charts right away. It peaked at number 13 and was certified gold by October of that year. It was really their breakthrough record, no doubt. Okay. Uh, it's also considered one of the greatest live albums ever. And I think uh, if we ever get back to doing the live album, the greatest live albums that we did a few times. Yeah. We might, we might talk about what went into that, which was quite a bit. um yeah, we gotta
0: do the yeah. Oh, this one could be the making of also.
1: Yeah, like a making of or uh if we do any more live a bunch of live. If we do it I mean, part
0: three, right? Part three of the best. Exactly. Album. Yeah. We
1: had two parts, five each. It was like the top five, right? Yeah. Each. Now, um, it's also considered one of the greatest live albums ever made by the Library of Congress, who has it down in their, you know, listings as a historical recording. Um, Now, despite this huge success of At the Fillmore East, the Allman Brothers and some of its entourage now struggled with heroin addiction, Uh. okay? Dwayne Allman, bassist Barry Oakley, and roadies Robert Payne and Red Dog Campbell, uh, checked into the Linwood Bryant Hospital for rehabilitation in October of 1971. Uh, these things were typ- typically about three weeks, three or four weeks long. Okay. And on October 29th, 1971, Dwayne Allman, then 24 years old, was killed in an automobile, in a motorcycle accident. And it was only one day after he returned from rehab. All right. What happened to him was he was riding his motorcycle at a kind of high speed, um, rate of high rate of speed, when there was a flatbed truck in front of him, and it was carrying a crane on the back. Yeah. And it stopped suddenly at an intersection, and he had to swerve to the left very quickly to avoid it. They don't know if he hit the crane, a little bit of the ball and chain that would hang off the the crane, or if the motorcycle hit the the flatbed. But he was launched in the air. The bike was launched in the air, and the bike came down on top of him. Killed him. Okay, well, no. The, The speed, he must have been going fast. He didn't get killed at that point. When the bike went on top of him, it pushed him about another 90 feet. And so that's far, okay? That's far, man. And, and, and to be pinned under the bike. I don't know how fast he was going, but he must have been flying. And uh, he was taken to the hospital. He was alive. But they did some emergency surgery on him. But too many of his inner organs were crushed. And yeah. he would die a few hours later. That might pretty
0: much kill him, man. Well, thing I, mean, I don't know how he
1: you know, he was he was launched in the air, probably just coming down and I and he wasn't wearing a helmet.
0: He's like he didn't snap his neck.
1: He could have. It could have been a whole bunch of things.
0: You would think the band would be over after Dwayne died.
1: No, but they um they, they held a meeting. Yeah. And they they got together and they said that they wanted to continue. They felt that they were kind of disciples of Dwayne Allman, that he had taught them things, no. okay? And they want—they felt that they had a lot I, to give.
0: Think about it, 24. He teached them and I, they were disciples. So we at 24.
1: Yeah. And he already had, think about the career. He had the live album, two Allman yeah. Brothers records, two records from the Hourglass and before, some singles, okay? So he, you know, he was pretty accomplished by 24. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some people could only wish for something like that by the time you're 50, you know. But, you know, he he lived he he lived hard, you know, and and uh, you know he got out of rehab. He was sober, okay. And
0: uh, not at one point, they, even Greg Olman was saying the Oldman brothers. There was just guys called the Olman brothers that were playing.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I th- I mean, from this point on, it would only be Greg Olman. Yeah, there'd be no no more brothers in the band. Yeah, there'd
0: be no more brothers.
1: Yeah, yeah, they just kept it because you know of the tradition of it, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, they wanted to continue on, so they what they did is uh, they decided to record another record, just jump back on their horse and do that. And that album would be called "Eat a Peach." All right, great great record. It was released on February in 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 February of nineteen seventy two. Now, it was their second hit record in a row. It got to number four on Billboard Top 200. Technically, it did better than the live record. And uh, they would perform 90 shows in the following year as a five-piece, okay, Uh, without Dwayne. They didn't replace him, okay? The band also bought 432 acres of land in Juliet, Georgia, for hundred and sixty thousand dollars and they nicknamed it the farm it soon became the, the, the main hangout for everybody yeah. and the uh big
0: house the farm
1: yeah yeah and and, and it, it it's made um their bass player uh, oakley very happy because he wanted to kind of live like that with the whole band together okay and uh but oakley was not doing so good Okay, you know he had struggled with drugs and everything too, um, but he was, you know, drinking a lot excessively. He was back on drugs. Uh, he was also losing weight very quickly. Um, friends basically said he wasn't dealing well with the death of Dwayne. Yeah. He kind of wanted to get high, be high, and stay high. That's really what they said he was he was into. Now on November eleventh, nineteen seventy two. In a twist of fate, he would be on his motorcycle uh, a little bit lumped up, okay? But he was also in a good mood because he had just gotten through a jam session with the band that went very well, okay? Uh, But he he was lumped up, and he crashed into the side of a bus on his motorcycle about three blocks from where Dwayne had been killed.
0: Dude, how fucking
1: how crazy is that? Yeah. Okay. Now he didn't die from that. Okay. He shook it off, and refused any medical treatment. He didn't go to the hospital. But later on that night, he became delirious, and he would be taken to the hospital where he would he would die from a uh, s- basically cerebral swelling, which is brain swelling from a yeah. fractured skull. So he had a fractured skull from the accident and he didn't do anything about it. Wow. He that, that that's really sad cuz that probably could have been preventable. Yeah. And again, no helmets. <laughs> In those days, you know. I I don't know if there's any states that don't have helmet laws anymore. I'm not sure. You know, you got to wear a helmet now.
0: Yeah, did it was it when was it like that football player Big Ben? Didn't he get into a car accident? whats wearing a helmet also?
1: A motorcycle, go, accident? Yeah, yeah, motorcycle maybe, accident? Yeah, maybe. I don't remember. I think yeah, that last
0: one was Big Ben. I don't think that monster was wearing a helmet either. What how
1: long ago was that?
0: Oh man, this is maybe like six, seven years ago when he was when he was like yeah. you know, he was he's he just won the Super Bowl and gets banged up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well football players they get those head injuries anyway, even with the helmets. Yeah. yeah. You know, but um, <clears throat> Oakley would be buried directly beside Dwayne, okay, at Rose Hill Cemetery where they wrote all those songs.
0: That is wild, man. Yeah. That, that, those guys, like, it's like it was meant to be.
1: Yeah. I mean, so much tragedy already in the band, and they're just really yeah. starting to take off. Yeah. Uh, the Allman Brothers Band, once again, Decided to carry on, okay, um, and that was, in, of course, in the face of tragedy. They would carry on. They auditioned bass players and they settled on Lamar Williams. Um, he was an old friend of drummer. Uh, he was an old friend of drummer uh, Jay Johani Johansson's. Okay, he was at. Uh, he was a Mississippi native, and about two years out of the army. Uh, there was a guy named Chuck Level who was playing piano on Greg Allman's solo record. Greg Allman put out a solo record at that time. And he was starting to contribute more and more with the actual Allman Brothers band. So he became a member of the band as well. Uh, Dickie Betts, at this point, was starting to become a leader in the band, okay, Uh, and and writing more and more songs. Uh, Their next album will be called Brothers and Sisters, and that was a, a big success. That peaked that yeah. at number one. And it had the big hit single, Ramblin' Man, which That's got to number song. two. Yeah, which got to number two. You know, I'll just tell you a little funny thing with that song. For my whole life, whenever I hear that song, the first thing that comes to my mind, and I, I guess I'm crazy, is there's a scene in The Exorcist where the two priests are talking in a bar drinking beer. And the Ramblin' Man is a song in the background. (laughs) And you hear it prominently, you know, while they're talking, you know. And I always just think of, like, two priests getting lumped up. Listen to that song.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just that ritual alone, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. Now, they would begin returning to touring again and playing a lot larger venues than they had ever played, making more money, okay, but they were, as a band, they were suffering from a lot of miscommunications, a lot of misunderstandings, uh, and more drug problems. This came to a head when backstage there was a brawl um, when they, when they um, played with the Grateful Dead at Washington's RFK Stadium in June of 73. Uh, the brawl resulted in the firings of three longtime roadies, um, you know, there was just a lot of problems between their crew and the band. Everybody was just not getting along. Um, they were also making hundred grand per show in those days. Wow. Okay. Now, this allowed them to rent the famous Starship. Okay. The Starship was a customized Boeing 720B jet plane, okay, that was used by everybody from Led Zeppelin to the Rolling Stones at times. Okay, and uh you know, Greg Allman and and you know the band, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard that there was places like on that jet to hide drugs, like in case in case you got busted. Okay, there was like oh, secret <laughs> compartments and all kinds of shit. You know, I'm sure Keith Richards had that put in, you know. That's
0: fucking funny, man.
1: Yeah. Now, now, uh, uh and yeah, yeah, I hide the dope. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also that year, Greg Allman and Dickie Betts released uh top 20 solo albums. Okay, now in July of 74, the Allman brothers went to Europe for the first time. Uh, interestingly, all right, they already had some hit records but had never been to Europe. Mostly that was probably because of the gas crisis at the time, it was very yeah. expensive to fly over there. So uh, they headlined two big outdoor events. One was in Holland and one was in the UK. Uh, The one in Holland was called the Summer Concert 74. And that was attended by about 20,000 people. And then the second one was much bigger. Uh, It was called the Bucolic Frolic. And that was on July 20th in Nebworth Park in the UK. Uh, And that was attended by about 70,000 people.
0: That's like that's like that's a big draw, man. Especially
1: yeah. Europe that they never been there. Yeah, never been there, and yeah. Now, when they would come back from from Europe um, in August, they would start recording what became the 1975 album "Win, Lose or Draw." Now, they were showing cracks at this point. Uh, the, the the sessions didn't go that well. They were very disjointed. Greg Allman was dating Cher at this point. Okay. You know, the Allman Brothers were one of the biggest bands in the world. She was a big star. Okay. And uh, he had moved out to L.A. to be with her. Um, In fact, when they did the vocals for Win, Lose, or Draw, he didn't even want to go to Macon to do it. He did his vocals in L.A. and sent them over. Um, The band members had grown apart. Basically, and rarely when they played live did they even do sound checks or anything like that. So they were getting sloppy. Sloppy, and they, yeah. And they, they were acting like the rock stars that they didn't want to act like before, you know. Um, the band members basically said that, you know, this was a, a high point. The, the only real high point at this time was when they played for a, a benefit for presidential candidate Jimmy Carter, who was actually a fan. Okay. He liked And, uh, but you know, things would come to a head after an incident. Um, when, uh, one of their security guys would be in a drug bust, uh, guy's name was Scooter Herring and Greg testified against him. Okay. Which pissed off the other band members. They called him a rat. Okay. And basically, uh, you know, it was it was a it was a large amount of cocaine five five different counts for distributing cocaine and uh, he originally got a 75 year sentence wow okay but that got lowered and then he would be pardoned by jimmy carter eventually
0: that amazing
1: yeah <laughs> yeah
0: Man, he pardoned by jimmy yeah. carter
1: now now allman always maintained that herring told him to take that deal Okay. in other words, Allman would have went away, too, if he didn't take that deal to go against Henry. Okay. and Henry said that, go ahead, take the deal. I'll take the fall. But it it destroyed the relationship with him and the rest of the members for a while. OK, they didn't want to talk to him. They they just figured he was a snitch. And that was it. Now, uh, as a result of this, the band would break up. Okay and uh livell williams and jamo played together in a band called sea level now um uh, dickie betts formed a band called great southern and greg allman started the greg allman band okay so they kind of went separate ways right after that trial um they would put out a live album an Allman brothers live record at that time in 1976 called wipe the windows check the oil dollar gas and uh that was released in an attempt to save capricorn records because capricorn wow. just lost their cash cow in the yeah. Allman brothers and and they needed to to have a hit record to put it out you know. now in 78 uh this would be two years into breaking up uh greg allman and phil walden Approached Dickie Betts about the idea of a reunion. Now, their first public appearance together came at a great southern show in Central Park that summer. Allman, Trucks, and Jmo joined for a few songs. Uh, Williams and LeVeL declined, okay? They didn't want to um, they didn't want anything in, to be involved with that. Yeah. So they hired guitarist Dan Toller and bassist David Colt Goldflies from Great Southern, to join the Allman Brothers band. Uh, They got back with producer Tom Dowd to cut an album. It was called Enlightened Rogues. and uh, Enlightened Rogues was an expression that uh, Dwayne Allman used to describe the band. He called them Enlightened Rogues. (laughs) That's
0: a pretty cool name. Yeah,
1: pretty good. Um, The album was a minor hit, and the band admitted that they – even though they tried, the chemistry really wasn't there yet. Okay. Um, in fact, Dickie Betts filed a lawsuit against Phil Walden and Capricorn records, uh, for non-payment of record and, uh, and publishing royalties. Now, Betts lawyer, Steve Mazarski became the manager of the group. Okay. At that point, he, they, they cut ties with Phil Walden. Um, at that point, Mazarski wanted to get them signed to a label. He had connections at Arista Records and Clive Davis over there, so they signed the Allman Brothers Band. And right away, there was a problem because Clive Davis kind of wanted to change their sound. They wanted to make them more like a a Southern Led Zeppelin type band.
0: But they they weren't that kind of they weren't that kind of band, you know.
1: No, they weren't. They weren't. Zeppelin esque in any way um great great musicians great guitar players as good as zeppelin but just not not in that sound at all um and he started to bring in outside producers which was something that they they wanted to work with tom Dowd. okay but uh clive davis wouldn't let it happen now the first arrister effort was called reach for the sky and it was released in 1980 um, the album was produced by Nashville songwriters Mickey Lawler and Johnny Cobb. Uh, singer Bonnie Bramlett, famous country singer, uh, was touring with the Allman Brothers, uh, actually sings lead on one of the songs on that album. Mike Lawler soon became part of the Allman Brothers backup band, playing what was called a keytar. And to be honest with you, uh, according to fans, that sucked. Okay. okay. You know what a guitar is, right? To keyboard, keyboard keyboards on a guitar. Oh, I've seen them. You've seen terrible. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that is not that has got nothing <laughs> to do with the Allman Brothers. Okay. <laughs> Drugs were still a problem for the band, okay? Particularly with Greg Allman and Dickie Betts. Uh, unfortunately on Reach for the Sky there was no hit single. Um And basically that was because the Southern rock genre was kind of waning at that time. If you think 1980, there really wasn't much of that around anymore. At least not in a big way. You still had bands like uh, Molly Hatchet and stuff like that playing, but they were playing little clubs and things then, you know, Um, the band would fire longtime roadie Red Dog Campbell at that point and started to kind of grow apart again. All the differences about business affairs and, things like that within the group. Um, Manager Mazarski was becoming tired of the band. Uh, He slowly was easing himself away because he called it a million-dollar headache and a quarter-million-dollar job. Okay? So it just wasn't worth it for him. So their second and final album for Arista was called Brothers of the Road, and it was released in 1981. Uh, They collaborated with name producer Jack Ryan, who had worked with Styx and the Doobie Brothers. And just hearing that, I think that this guy would have no idea what to do with the Allman Brothers.
0: Yeah. You know, Sticks Sticks
1: was about as far away from country rock as you could be. Uh, And the Doobie Brothers, I just, oh God, I, I don't know. Anyway, he pushed even harder to change their sound, okay, which did not go over well um the single straight from the heart though was a minor top 40 hit and it would be yeah and it would be the last you know song that they would ever have in the top 40 uh the group began clashing with clive davis a lot at this point over their sound um and they decided to break up over this they said "Nah, it's not worth it Okay, we're just, you know, not selling a lot of records And it's it. they want to change our sound We're going to go separate ways They want to
0: change the sound I, I don't understand that
1: I don't know, you know, I mean You know what's funny is uh, another band we're going to get to at some point uh, Foghat, okay. okay Oh yeah, they, they got, had that problem They had that problem late in their career Around the same time, 1980 Because of New Wave and they actually tried to go a little new wave, and you you listen to it. I actually like some of it, but most most fans think it's awful. But but I mean they want to hear slow ride over and over. But I actually yeah. liked uh uh you know some of those records that they did. Like there's like two in a row that they did like eighty and eighty one that were like that. But that was the, you know it was people were trying to the music industry was changing, sounds were changing, the seventies were over. You know, so they were trying to come up with something new. And the Allman Brothers just weren't going to do that. And if you didn't get it, you know, you were going to clash with them, you know. So the last appearance they would do at this point was in 1982 on Saturday Night Live. And they would break up right after that. Now, over the next few years, members would play together live at shows. They had projects that they were working on and, and they would play together. Uh, Greg, Al- uh, Greg Allman in 1987 Probably remember this. He had that hit song "I'm No Angel."
0: Yep.
1: Okay, and uh, that kind of reinvigorated his career again. Yep. Um, now they celebrated their twentieth anniversary in 1989, and the band reunited for a summer tour with JMO once again on drums. Uh, in addition, they featured Warren Haynes and pianist Johnny Neal from the Dickey Betts band, and bassist Alan Woody who was hired after open auditions at Truck Studio in Florida. Um, There was new interest in the band after a multi-CD box set came out. It was called Dreams. And Epic Records, who had signed Greg Allman for his hit solo record in 87, signed the band. Okay. Now, Danny Goldberg became the band's manager. Danny had worked with Led Zeppelin in particular and Bonnie Raitt. Uh, Red Dog was back as a roadie for that. (laughs) Let's
0: get the band back together, baby.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Now in 1990, uh, they would see a reunion with producer Tom Dowd again, and they produced the record seven turns, which was a return to form. It was a pretty good record. Uh, The addition of Haynes and Woody seemed to kind of reinvigorate the band, re-energize them. And Neil, unfortunately would leave in 1990. And they added percussionist Mark Qu- Quinonez, uh formerly of the band Spyro Gyra, that following year. Spyrogyra, um, right? They were like a jazz kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the band performed 87 shows in 1991 and 77 shows in 1992. They didn't renew Goldberg's contract as manager. And as a result, their tour manager, Bert Holman, became their full-time manager, okay, in 91. And he would stay with them for the remainder of their career. Their next studio album was called Shades of Two Worlds in 1992. It was produced, um, uh, when that album actually produced the song um, Nobody Knows, which ended up being a fav- fan favorite. Uh, they also released a live album, An Evening with the Allman Brothers first set. I in like 1992, that. and that was uh, recorded at the Beacon Theater yeah. Where they had acquired That's when they had started their residencies there Okay, every year uh, The band would play a series of 10 consecutive shows um, At the Beacon every year in the spring For many years to come after that
0: It was called the different March Madness
1: March, The other March Madness, yeah The other March Madness It's true, I mean, for many years You knew spring was coming when the Allman Brothers tickets went, for, went on went on sale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know guys that went every year. I know guys that went every year, and they would I tell me I how went, great it was.
0: I think I went, like, uh, 94, mm-hmm. 95,
1: and 96. Okay. That was good times. Um,
0: I went that time. And I remember I went to at least I at least got tickets for two shows. One oh, two shows back-to-back? Yeah, no, like one one week and then one one following week. You know, I'm trying to get like the last show. Go there to see like the first show and then you see the last show. You can tell the difference. how. By like, the last show, they were ready to get out of there, but they were jamming for hours.
1: Isn't uh? Isn't our buddy Big Mike? Isn't isn't he a big Allman Brothers fan?
0: Yeah, he probably had gone to some of those. Allman he likes Brothers. those. He likes
1: those jam bands, the Dead, and all he, that stuff.
0: We used to hang out with. Uh, I used to hang out with another group of guys here. And they, were, they all loved the Allman Brothers, you know. Like yeah. we would just go. We worked in this company. And they all, and One guy would always get tickets for all the bucks.
1: You know who's a big fan of the Allman Brothers is uh, is Vinny, who does the Vinnie, theme song. Yeah, yeah uh, he, he he liked them. Yeah. Now, um, uh, by 1993, things were getting contentious again within the band while on tour. Uh, Dickie Betts got arrested one night after shoving some cops okay and basically uh he was out of the band for a little while and they had to find somebody they replaced him with um a guy named david grissom from john mellencamp's band and then uh they brought in uh jack pearson okay who was a a nashville-based player who was a friend of haynes in the band uh an interesting thing and i remember when they did this I remember reading about it is they brought in Zach Wild from Ozzy Osbourne's band to play guitar for one gig. And it was a disaster because they didn't like his antics, his stage antics. I don't see how that would work having Zach Wild in the Allman brothers, but, um, bets would return in a short time. And, uh, their third post reunion record called where it all begins was recorded live, on a soundstage with no audience in 1994. Um, the band continued to tour frequently and they got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 1995. Uh, Greg Allman. I, I remember watching this. Greg Allman was lumped up. Okay. I think, I think it was one of the most lumped up speeches I've ever seen. And, uh, he was, he couldn't even finish the speech. He just, they just walked him off. And, uh, when he saw his his uh, his performance, <laughs> his his lack of performance, when it got broadcasted later, he was mortified, okay? And he quit drinking and doing drugs. Yeah. He finally got himself sober. Um, now, you know, he did it. Good for him. But during the 1996 run at the Beacon, Greg Allman and Dickie Betts almost got into a fight that, could have ended the show, okay, and canceled the tour. But, you know, things were falling apart, and Haynes and Woody figured this is it for the band. So they left before they could even end the band, and they started Government Mule. Okay. I didn't they, yeah, didn't they play together sometimes, Allman Brothers and Government Mule? Like
0: I think they had, yeah. They, they yeah, I they think did they did after them.
1: that. Yeah. Now, the group recruited um, Otile Burbridge, formerly of the Aquarium Rescue Unit, to replace Woody on bass and Jack Pearson on guitar. Uh, Concerns rose about loudness at this point, (coughs) excuse me, in the Allman Brothers. Uh, When I say loudness, I mean the the band was... um, Pearson had tinnitus. Okay. And... The loudness was mostly coming from Dickie Betts. So Pearson had to leave, okay, uh, after the 1999 Beacon Theater shows. And Derek Trucks, who was Butch Trucks' nephew, 20 year old nephew, came in on guitar. And he was very young, 20 years old, but he played a good guitar. And he was honored to get the gig, okay. Now, a live LP called Beacon at the Beacon was released in 2000 and it's actually considered a horrible record okay yeah, it's, it's not too much of the band shows at this time were really based around Dickie Betts yeah and what he was doing okay and I think the band was feeling left out so they wrote a letter to him okay and said that you know for the summer tour you're not with us basically okay wow. and you know it was really meant to, the band said it was meant to be temporary he would be back okay but he didn't take it that way he and uh, he got he got a lawyer and he sued the band and he got some a cash payout okay uh and he went on to record new music with some other people okay and that would be it okay uh now you know they would go on, okay. Now Jimmy Herring joined the band for that summer tour to replace Betts, but the negative press was out there, you know, constantly saying, How can you have an Allman Brothers without Dickie Betts? There's no yeah. there's no there's no point, okay. And uh Herring, Jimmy Herring would leave after that because he just couldn't take that kind of criticism, you know. So that August, former bassist Alan Woody okay, was found dead in a New York City hotel room. Uh, Warren Haynes set up a benefit for his friend and bandmate, which included the Allman Brothers band. Uh, wow. With Now, Derek Trucks was unavailable, so Haynes sat in on guitar for the gig. Uh, he would rejoin the band in 2001 for their Beacon Theater run, and he reportedly felt more comfortable in the band than he ever had even at that point in 2003 the allman brothers band would release their final studio album hitting the note to critical acclaim it featured Derek trucks and is the only album that they have that doesn't have Dickie Betts on it
0: that's crazy
1: yeah now they would continue touring heavily through the decade but by 2010 health setbacks set in when greg allman had a liver transplant and then in 2012, he had to go back to rehab for addiction to pain medications related to the transplant. Uh, David Frankie Toller died at a hospice care center, okay, in Bradenton, in, uh, Bradenton Florida, on June 4, 2011, after a long illness following his liver transplant, at the age of 59. In 2012, the Alman Brothers started their own music festival called the peach and it featured many associated acts some different genres as well and they did two performances as the allman brothers band they played a run at the beacon in 2013 as they always had and uh after they would continue with more touring in 2014 haynes and Derek trucks announced that they would leave the band at the end of the year the group intended that their 2014 run at the Beacon would be their last, but the residency was cut short um, after a couple of shows because uh, Greg Allman developed bronchitis. However, in September of 2014, they performed their At the Fillmore East album, complete at the Lock-In Music Festival in Virginia. Their wow. final show would be October 28th, 2014 at the Beacon Theater, which was appropriate. Uh, the show was the 238th sellout uh, Allman Brothers show at the Beacon Theater. The concert consisted of three sets comprising mostly music from their first five albums. That must have been incredible. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but no Dicky bets. Yeah. Okay. Now, on January 17th, Butch Trucks, uh, founding member of the Allman Brothers, died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And that May, founding member Greg Allman died from liver cancer at the age of 69. And that basically put an end to the Allman Brothers at that point. And that was a couple of years later. Um, so they had a great, amazing career, you know, 45 years.
0: Do you see that thing that the, in January twenty twenty the surviving member of the final brothers lineup, Omen Brothers, according to some, the brother announced they intend to hold a, a concert of, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the band on March ten. The concert lasted four hours.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that again, that was you know who was in that band?
0: It was, it was probably probably nobody, none of nobody, the brothers, nobody original. Anybody.
1: Yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's hard to count that, but, yeah, you know. Uh, they had a great run, uh, especially early on. The 70s stuff is is very good. Uh, early 70s stuff is the best, my opinion.
0: Yeah, man, wow. What a history, man. A band that I've seen live a few times, man, also. Yeah. What a yeah, good show, man. And, and, a long, crazy let me, history. Let me tell you, there were performers. Like, when you saw them on stage, that you would never think nothing was happening. And then there was just such fucking after the freaking shows were over. And the it's fans insane. were
1: the fans were loyal, right? They were totally into it.
0: Oh, the band was. loyal. the best thing is when you went to a uh, you went to Urban Brother concert. Once this fucking Nights lore. <laughs> there was <laughs> smokes everywhere. There was oh yeah. Smoke popping smoking weed everywhere.
1: <laughs> lot, time to light up.
0: <laughs> hey, so Mike, how do we get in hold of you if we want to reach out to you?
1: Okay, you can find me on Instagram, rockermike212. You can find me on Clout Hub and MeWe as rockermike. You can find me on Facebook as rockomike, rockomike, and then also on Facebook, the Rock Show Podcast group page. Uh, Also, I will be going on Truth Social soon. More info about that.
0: Ooh, Truth Social sounds good. And uh you can find me on any social media with Getting Lumped Up, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So if you get something from Getting Lumped Up, that will be for me and the rest of the crew. And uh, guys, thank you for your support. We'll be doing a lot more shows this year. Remember, this it's a conspiracy show, a Dan Rock show, the new format for the whole Getting Lumped Up universe. <laughs> and we with- <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a universe it is! <laughs> what a
0: universe it is! And for all you people out there, please watch our new series. Um, you know, um,
1: up, the Son of Sam Chronicles.
0: The Son of Sam Chronicles, the, the one of the, the series that people are talking about, and it's about twenty to uh, between fifteen to twenty minute episode, and uh, you guys will enjoy it. And with that, I will leave you. Remember. Don't get drunk.
1: Get lumped up.
0: See you next week.
1: Take care, people.
0: Show. Ooh, yeah, on the rock show. Ooh, yeah, on the rock show. Don't tell your friends and everyone you know. Let's get lumped up on the rock show.